lawyers cannot work anymore other than in this social app that is TechGC. Hey everyone, this is Chris Sands and you are listening to The Leading Edge, brought to you by professional community platform, TechGC. Today's episode is on blockchain, where we discuss the largest impacts of blockchain, how companies are leading in this space, we review some of the SEC rules that have harmed the blockchain industry, and also look at a new proposed SEC rule that could transform the industry. Hope you enjoy, and if you do, review and subscribe. Blockchain technology may be the most important innovation in the coming decade. And the story we've all heard about blockchain is one of financial innovation, where people can transact cryptocurrencies instantly anywhere in the world at zero cost. The transformative idea here is that this will create a whole new financial system, one that does not rely on banks and intermediaries to get in between those transactions. Since this idea rolled out in 2008 with Bitcoin, it has sparked all kinds of activity in financial markets, creating a whole industry of cryptocurrency trading, and naturally, a lot of scams that has alerted the Securities and Exchange Commission. And now that the SEC has been flexing their muscles on the issue, the result has been major roadblocks for U.S. blockchain projects to roll out and spread the more important story of blockchain, privacy and security. We have all benefited from services like Google, Facebook, Amazon, but it has come at a high cost. Our data, our identity, put into the hands of the largest tech organizations in the world without any real transparency on how that information is being used. Blockchain has the potential to gain our identity back and take full ownership over our data. To get deeper into the impacts of blockchain and the roadmap to progress, I'm joined today by Georgia Quinn. Georgia is the general counsel of CoinList, an organization that helps blockchain projects manage compliance and sales of their digital tokens. She also just published an article labeled Crypto's Safe Harbor, how the SEC's Rule 195 could change the industry, and we'll also get into that. Georgia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Let's just start with the impact of blockchain. Why do you think this technology is so important? I think you kind of put it well earlier when you mentioned that it's more than just financial services. I've been in the financial services industry, and I think it is important. I live in New York. It's like kind of the economic foundation of our city. But blockchain is so much more than that. And unfortunately, it really kind of got off on a bad foot because it couched itself in the nomenclature of finance. And that became became everything that people saw. And so now anytime really anybody, especially a regulator, thinks about blockchain and the technology and the projects that are utilizing it, they think about financial regulation. And it's really unfortunate because if we just never use the word ICO and never put things in financial terms and just called it software, I don't think we would have had all the crazy pump and dump situation and just all of the hype and all the negative kind of blowback the industry's had. But there's a whole lot out there that blockchain can be used for. And we're just now starting to see that. And it's really hard to describe because people always use the analogy like, oh, it's like when the internet was first getting started. And it's a hard analogy to pull off, right? Because the internet is something so vast now and so important in everyone's daily life to think that blockchain is going to be there somewhere. It's a pretty big leap. But there are similarities. And the point is right now, we're just just in this kind of layer one phase, right? So we have a lot of these protocols out there that are really competing to be that initial infrastructure and those rails. And so we've got Ethereum, it's 
been tested. It's out there. People understand the flaws with it. And now we've got these other projects that are coming in like Algorand and Cello and Solana, and they have just a different structure. And they're really trying to fill the gaps that the protocols that have come before have left. And we're just really looking at the pipes and it's kind of hard to see what that's going to look like in the future. It's like, you know, in the early days of the internet, when you could send an email, well, really all you could do was send a couple lines of text, probably to just somebody down the hall in your dorm room. But that was just mind blowing. And so right now we're building these rails. They're allowing people to send certain information, store data, have certain privacy and encryption settings around it but we're not seeing the full fruition of what can actually happen. So right now we're building the pipes, we're laying the railroad tracks, then will come the train cars and the railroad stations and the ability to just buy a single ticket for a single seat on that train and take it wherever you want to go. But we're so far from that at this point that it's really hard. And it's hard, frankly, to explain it to regulators because they're not known to be the most visionary of people. And generally they're more for good reason, pragmatic. And so when we're trying to describe these things, I think that's where we see a lot of friction. Regardless, this is something that I believe in. And eventually we will have these amazing apps that run on top of these layer one protocols that are built. And these apps are going to be able to do amazing things like encrypt your entire DNA code and allow you to store it safely and access it in medical situations when necessary. And it'll allow people to be identified with certain biometric characteristics that again can be kept secure and only accessible by that individual. It'll allow for people to engage in all the types of online activities that they can do now, but in a secure way where they don't have to relinquish all of their personal data and information unless they want to. It'll help with, obviously, supply chain is a big one people always use. I think that's pretty obvious. And those kind of use cases don't really have the legal issues and complexities that I struggle with because those could just be complete enterprise solutions that a company could just build that in-house using blockchain technology. That's not going to raise any of the legal and regulatory issues that I'm addressing. But still, it's a great use case for the technology. And then, of course, there's all of the financial services use cases. So helping underbanked, helping people have secure, quicker, lower cost financial transactions, having stability against central bank manipulation of currency. So those kind of things people, I think, have really addressed and are a little more obvious. But there's just a whole host of use cases and things that, frankly, my feeble brain can't fathom. Okay, so just to clarify, right now the internet is a layer one protocol with all these websites and tools built on top of it. So now a lot of these blockchain projects are trying to build an entirely new layer one of the internet, right? Right. They're trying to be the new layer one. They're trying to rebuild that base layer. And then the means of exchange on that layer is their token. And so the goal is you can build other things on top of it. And the way you transmit information or value throughout that network is the token. And so that means there's only room for one of these projects to be successful, right? One internet, one protocol. 
Well, I wouldn't go that far because I think competition is great. And I think there is room for more than one. I don't think we've got room for 20, but I definitely think that having two or three options out there, just like we have multiple operating systems, there's not a million operating systems out there, but there are choices and there are valid reasons to use one over the other. And so I think that there will be some, but I am very much enjoying right now seeing these different protocols having to compete and the interaction amongst them and the innovation that's taking place where they see, they can identify the issues and problems in the other protocols and then they're trying to solve for them. And that's just super exciting. I mean, that's just why you want to wake up, right? Absolutely. And one example of a company who I feel has the exact right approach to creating this decentralized system is Blockstack, who I saw on the Coinless website. They've created a massive suite of apps that all run on the blockchain, the most important ones being alternatives to the Google suite apps like Gmail, Google Docs, Google Sheets, and so on. To do my work, I honestly can't live without these apps. But I hate the fact that I've signed away all my data to Google in exchange. If these apps on Blockstack are as effective as the Gmail tools, I mean, that's huge. And so as this decentralized ecosystem grows, I can envision that there can be various value exchanges through these apps. Maybe I get rewarded in digital tokens if I upload a piece of content and I can use those tokens to pay a freelancer to help me. Whatever the value exchange might be, the use of cryptocurrency could be enabled simply by using this suite of apps on a private, secure network and exchanging with other parties. Yes, that's exactly what's envisioned. And the project is, as you described, it's I see you and I raise you, right? What a bar to set for yourself that we have to build a protocol that's going to perform like at the Google level, because that's a great product. People love that product. But in addition to that, you're going to improve upon it so that you're creating this way to encrypt the data and maintain the security of people's most personal issues. I think as much as I love using the Google products, it's horrific to me to think that they know everything about me. They know about like the medical records that have been forwarded from my doctor. They know my entire schedule. They know if I'm going on vacation. They know where I am. They know how much money I spend. They know how much money I make. It's absurd. And it's also being used in ways that I probably don't agree with. It's probably being used for certain types of AI and other programming things that to me, I find offensive. And that part also frustrates me because I have no control over that. And I have viewpoints about how I think data should be used and the way that technology should evolve. And I don't get any say in that. And it's my own data. Right. And so now understanding how important blockchain is as it pertains to security and privacy, let's go into all the hurdles that companies have to go through to actually work on building out these layer one protocols. It's this age old chicken egg. So they need to get their protocol, their token, their vision into the hands of as many people as possible, because that's going to actually help the network to function and allow the network to function. And from a regulatory perspective, they're hamstrung because they can't get their product out there. They can't get it into the hands of the people that need to use it, because at least in the U.S., our uncertain regulatory regime, in many instances, and our SEC chairman has stated, that every issuance of these assets is an offering of securities. And so if that's the case, then a very high hurdle is placed on the offer and sale of those assets. And that requires them to either be registered with the SEC, which is that whole like IPO type registration process costs millions and millions of dollars and frankly isn't really applicable to these types of projects or find an exemption, which generally 
means only being able to deliver your tokens to what are called accredited investors, which is high net worth individuals. Only 7% of people in America qualify as an accredited investor. And so if you told me that your product needed mass adoption, and if every single eligible person adopted it, that would only be 7% of the United States, I would say, "Mm, you know what, let's go back to the drawing board on that. I have to inject a sidebar here on the accredited investor rules, because I mean, how absolutely ridiculous is this? I've seen these crowd investment companies emerge and they look real interesting where you can invest as little as $5,000 in real estate on their easy to use platform. But wait a minute, they can only offer that to millionaires. I mean, is there a more blatant law that pushes inequality more than this, where you are disabling the average person to get access to high yielding investments? Yeah, so this is an issue. And this has always been like that clubhouse sort of backroom deal and access to investment opportunities where if you know the right people and are of the right stature, then you get access to these deals. And if you're the Main Street person, you get access to your money market account and maybe some municipal bonds or something that you got from Charles Schwab. When we look especially at companies today and where the value is being created, it's all in tech startups that are not going public, that are not able to be accessed by Main Street investors. So these VC firms that are invested in, again, by millionaires, are the ones that are reaping all of the profits. It used to be that companies, when they reached a certain maturity point, would conduct an IPO and they would go public and then everyone could have access to them and people, by virtue of their pension funds and whatnot, would have access to them. But not so. That is not the case right now as companies are waiting longer and longer to go public. And when they do, the value has basically been extracted at that point. Yeah, I mean, I get the idea of consumer protection. Certainly, people have been taken advantage of and persuaded into bad investments. I mean, that still happens often in public markets, Bitcoin. But the assumption that anyone without a million dollar net worth or one of the other requirements to be an accredited investor is just too irresponsible to make private investments That's just so wrong on so many levels. It's supposed to protect people. It's typical protectionist where we have to save people from themselves because they're not smart enough and they'll put their money in bad deals and they'll get ripped off. So only rich people who can withstand the loss or can afford advisors to help them make these decisions should be able to invest in these things. And you can see the logic in that. I mean, a lot of people were getting ripped off. And so they needed to make sure that people weren't then dependent on the government dole. So you get it, but things can go too far and you can put other protections in place like really good disclosures. If instead of just saying you can't invest, you make the recipient of that investment provide really thorough disclosures and you make them liable if they lie or misrepresent in those disclosures, that can really help people make an informed decision. And then if it turns out that that person lied or misled them, then they have recourse in the courts and through the SEC. So it's all a balance that we're trying to find where we give people the freedoms to make their lives better, but then also protect them from unscrupulous people. But, you know, I always find it funny, actually. We have all these laws around who can start a business and raise money and how they can raise money for that business, who they can ask and what kind of securities they can issue to protect people from risky investments. But our own governments promote lotteries, which have far worse odds than any startup company. They promote lotteries and they promote gambling in certain instances, which guarantees that you will lose your money versus these other opportunities that do actually have potential upside. 
that is an amazing point that I've really never thought about. Okay, so we've looked at some of the bad rules that exist out there. So let's look at some of the optimistic areas. You wrote your article on a new SEC proposal, Rule 195, that would be very significant for the blockchain industry. So could you walk us through what Rule 95 is and what the impacts of this rule will be if enacted? What it does is it allows basically a three-year grace period for these projects to build and innovate and develop their networks and get those tokens in the hands of users. It solves the chicken egg problem because, like I mentioned before, if these things are treated as securities, I cannot distribute them broadly. I can distribute them maybe if I'm lucky to 7% of the people. So if I didn't have to treat them as securities, if I could treat them as, say, Coca-Cola, I could sell it to anybody as long as I didn't lie about it, I didn't misrepresent what it did, all the other protections of consumer products are still in place. That's why when people, they get so upset, they think, oh my God, it's the Wild West. There's no laws to protect people. Guess what? We've got a lot of laws in this country, like a lot. And so just because something's not a security doesn't mean I can defraud people with it. All of those laws, all of those rules are still in place. I can't lie and misrepresent and steal people's money. That's still illegal. And I should still go to jail for that. So there's still a backstop of laws just because something's not a security and doesn't have to be registered with the SEC doesn't mean I can kill people with it. What Rule 195 does is it says for three years, we're going to allow these things to not be called securities. We're just going to allow you, as long as you follow these requirements, and the requirements are significant. It's really not just like free for all. If you follow these requirements, you got three years to get yourself to a functional, decentralized, useful network. And if you can do it by then, then good for you and go forth and prosper. And if you can't at the end of that three-year period, you've got to find, you've got to register these as securities or find some exemption to be able to operate with them. I have to tell you, I am a huge fan of this. I think it is tailored enough and it's middle of the road enough so that it can satisfy all of the consumer protection concerns because there are required disclosures and there is required liquidity. And to me, the biggest consumer protection, even more than the threat of the SEC bringing a suit, is well-drafted, honest, fair, balanced disclosure and liquidity. Because if I can read and understand what this asset is and make an informed decision about it, and I make a decision at some point that I don't want it anymore, I don't like it, I don't think that it fulfills my needs, I have liquidity to sell it. I do not see a flood of crappy deals. I think that's where we're all all worried about. But the hurdle is high enough. The information that you have to submit and the way that you have to file notice with the SEC to avail yourself of this rule is really going to weed out a lot of the bad actors, right? Because they're just not going to want to take the time to do this and undertake this effort. So we're going to get people, again, who care about compliance. See, the problem was all the people who cared about compliance were going offshore because they couldn't get the certainty that they needed, while all the crappy deals were staying here because they didn't care in the first place. They were just out to defraud people. So whatever. And you're seeing the SEC is going after those projects. And I look at those cases and I look at those projects on a daily basis and it makes me cringe. That's not the industry I'm supporting. That's not what I am a part of. And that's what we're left with here. So what I want to see is those great projects that have been going overseas, forced to move offshore, coming back to the U.S., bringing their innovation here, providing jobs here, providing great products for U.S. citizens and allowing this ecosystem to flourish. Georgia Quinn, everyone.
general counsel of CoinList. This has been great. And thanks so much for spending the time. Oh, thanks for having me. And that does it for this episode of The Leading Edge. If you want to go deeper into blockchain, I recommend going to previous podcasts on the topic. If you're liking what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. You can also get updates and other fun content through the TechGC Twitter at TechGC underscore CEO or through my Twitter at The Leading Chris. Once again, I'm Chris Sands and thanks for listening.